Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Therefore, keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with flowing streams, with springs and underground waters, welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and from whose hills you may mine copper. You shall eat your fill and bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. This is the word of the Lord. Those who finally put the Bible together ascribe this book of Deuteronomy to the penship of Moses. They call it the fifth book of Moses. In fact, Moses did not write this book. Rabbi Gunter Plaut, in his commentary on the book of Deuteronomy, reminds us that this book is not mentioned until the book of 2 Kings, chapters 22 and 23. It's describing the reign of a king named Josiah. The northern tribes have already been decimated by the Assyrians. They simply are no more. Only the two southern tribes remain. Josiah is king. There is a high priest named Hilkiah who has convinced the king that he has allowed the temple to deteriorate, that it needs to be repaired, and so necessary repairs are being made. When one morning the high priest Hilkiah comes running into the king's chambers and announces to him that while they were repairing the temple, they found a fifth scroll of Moses. Ideas in Deuteronomy are not found in any other part of the Torah. The language, the vocabulary, the sentence structure, entirely different from the time of Moses more than 500 years before. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons, of sermons speaking to a people who are already in this land that was promised to them at the time of Moses. They are already there. They've been there for hundreds of years and, in fact, have done the very thing they were asked not to do. And that to, they forgot. They forgot who they were. They forgot a proper worship of God, a walking in his ways. Let's take a look. I've underlined four things for you to think about as you wait your time to meet the Lord at his table. Number one, it begins, remember, remember what the Lord your God has done. In the Hebrew Scriptures, that means go way back to Abraham and Sarah. Your ancestors were nobodies. Too old to have a baby. They'd been trying for years and years without success to have a baby. And suddenly one day God appeared at this little place called Ur in the Chaldean Mountains, modern-day Iraq, near the Tigris-Euphrates rivers, and asked, how would you like to have a child? They both giggled. Where were you 20 years ago, 30 years ago when we needed you? Would you like to have a child? We would like to have a child. Roll up your bed, pack your tent, come with me. 
Sarah was not morning sick the next day. It would be years before that promised child came, but he did come. He married Rebekah when he became a young man, and they had twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau firstborn, Jacob secondborn, but Jacob became the man through whom they would trace their lineage. Jacob would father twelve sons with four different mothers. But it would not be firstborn, nor second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth who would become the man. It would be Joseph, born of favorite wife. Joseph would end up in Egypt because his brothers sold him into slavery to a Midianite caravan going south. When famine came and his brothers had to find food, they went to Egypt where there was food because a very wise person had stored up grain during seven great years and still had grain during seven lean years. But then a Pharaoh came to power who knoweth not Joseph, and the people were made slaves for 400 years until God had the right man in the right place, a man named Moses, who was Israelite, but who grew up in the palace of the Pharaoh, who understood the ways of Pharaoh, who one day struck out in anger at an Egyptian mistreating one of his kinsmen. The man died. Moses had to flee for his life. He ended up in the desert the Sinai Desert. He became a husband and a father, and then one day, tending these smelly sheep and goats, he saw a bush on fire. Not being consumed by the fire, he walked a little closer, and God said, Deep in Moses' heart, I want you to go back to Egypt. I've heard the cries of my people. I'm ready to free them. We will visit plague upon plague on Pharaoh till he finally says, Go! It took ten of them, but he did finally say go. And when the people fled, Pharaoh decided, I've made a terrible mistake. I'm losing all of my slaves. He pursued them, and God parted the waters of the sea to let the Israelites escape, brought them all the way back to Sinai, and gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Moses and his generation didn't have the courage to cross the Jordan River, but the next generation, led by Joshua, did. And the twelve tribes settled in the Promised Land. For 200 years, they were lifted up from time to time by some judge who would call them together against a common enemy. Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, Deborah, Samuel, the last of those. And then came the kings, Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam. And then one worse and one worse than he was and one worse than he was. And after 400 years of kings... The dreaded enemy from Babylon came, burned the temple, burned the palace, took everything of value before they set fire to those two buildings and marched the best and brightest away to Babylon. Fifty years in captivity this time, then freed again by the Persians. Well, you remember how that story goes, don't you? Remember, remember God's story. Let's see, there was Ruth and Boaz, and they had a child named Obed. And Obed grew up and had a son named Jesse. And Jesse grew up and had a son named David. And a thousand years later, from that lineage, Mary would have a baby and name him Jesus, whom we call Christ, Messiah, Lord, and Savior. This is also Thanksgiving Sunday, and so it's a great time for you and me to remember we don't know yet exactly when and exactly how Native Americans came across that ice bridge from Asia, but our scholars are convinced they did, and spread out across North America. 
but most of us are not Native Americans, certainly not most of us in this country. Our lineage is somewhere else, so a significant date for us is 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 1620, when the pilgrims arrived, 1776, when we declared our independence. When our country was 200 years old, we decided to take our three small children on a bicentennial trip. We flew from Texas up to Washington, D.C., but we wanted to begin down at Jamestown. And so we went down to the rebuilt colony of Jamestown. We spent several days at Williamsburg. We went into Washington, D.C. We eventually ended up at Gettysburg. We went to, to uh, Philadelphia and saw the Liberty Bell. Trying to retrace a part of our country's history in Washington, D.C., you can see our White House. You can see the Capitol. You can see the Washington Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the Roosevelt Memorial, and all these memorials to our wars. Memorials to World War I and World War II and Korea and Vietnam, that black, black wall. We one day, I'm sure, will have memorials to the Iraqi War, the Afghanistan War, the Persian Gulf War. We keep on sending our young men and women into wars. So you need to cross the Potomac River and walk through that cemetery up on the hill and see thousands upon thousands of graves. Thousands of them. One lone soldier marching in front of the tomb of the unknown soldier. And there's one up there marching 24 hours a day. If it's 104 degrees in a Washington, D.C. summer or it's below freezing, there's ice and snow everywhere. At three in the morning, still marching by the tomb of the unknown soldier. Do you remember who we are? Where we've come from? That we've had hard times before. We've had some really great times too. We believe we're the greatest country on the face of the earth. That our system works best. That we can vote and change and vote again and change again. We can do all kinds of things in a democracy. Do you remember? Number two. Second, this author says, God has humbled us with hunger so that we might understand that people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus quoted during the temptations right after he was baptized. When the liar, the Bible says, the liar came to him and said, you must be getting hungry out here in the desert. How about turning all these little rocks into loaves of bread? No, no. We do not live by bread alone. A lot of you are a part of that generation that knew the last Great Depression. I actually was not born until the 40s myself, but the Depression was still on in Texas. It was still on in Oklahoma, too. Uh, the Great Depression. I've heard my mother and father's stories that when they married, my father was farming. And the first other job he had, he worked 12 hours a day for 50 cents. When I started to school, uh, I didn't have as much as other kids who went into my school. The whole county was consolidated in one school district. And the town kids wore blue jeans and the country kids wore striped overalls. And the town kids had light bread for making their sandwiches and we had a piece of bacon in a biscuit. 
I never had spending money when I was a little boy, so I wanted a job as soon as possible. I started mowing our own yard when I was six and seven, and I started mowing the neighbor's yards out at that compressor station when I was eight and nine. When I was ten, I got me a job selling grit newspapers. Any of you remember those? A grit newspaper sold all over the country. The papers cost me six cents. I was supposed to sell them for a dime, and if I did, I made four cents on every paper. When I was 12, I got a job at a supermarket. 12 years old, I was bagging groceries. I'd end up working 14 hours on a Saturday from 7 a.m. till 9 p.m., no lunch hour. You're expected to run back in the storeroom and woof down a sandwich as fast as you could and get back onto the floor. I was paid $4.50 to work 14 hours. That's a little over 30 cents an hour. But it took a long time for wages to get much better for the average person. After Gail and I were married in our sophomore years in college, I was pastoring the two little churches on the weekend, and she had part-time jobs during the week. She was a switchboard operator for a, a hospital, and they paid her 35 cents an hour. If she worked all afternoon, she could make a dollar and forty cents. Do you understand? Have you been hungry? Have you done with less? The night before last, it was 22 degrees here in Tulsa. When it's cold, I, I never forget to thank God that I have a warm house. A warm house. I didn't always have a warm house. When we lived with my grandparents, late part of World War II, they didn't have a warm house. Air blew up through the cracks. Gales in my first little parsonage was not a warm house. If we hadn't had an electric blanket, we would have frozen to death that first two or three years. We'd get out there on the weekend. One weekend, snow had blown in under the front door. There was a crack. And we turned on every little butane heater in the place, and it didn't melt the snow before we went back on Sunday night. I know what it is to be cold, and I know what it is to be hot. To be hot in the summertime and find no relief from the heat. Um, I hauled hay a couple of summers. That's a bad job. I followed a, uh, a man all over Panola County who bailed other people's hay. He had three teenage boys on a pickup. Finally got us a trailer to work with as well. At first, just the pickup, and then a pickup and trailer. And if we moved the hay, 75 to 90 pound bales, into the barn, and the barn was connected to the field, each one of us got a penny and a half, a bale. Best day I ever had was a 4th of July. As soon as the dew uh, dried on the hay that morning, early, the baler started working. The baler, the raker, the cutters, they all went home when the sun went down, but the haulers didn't go home. There was an old thunderhead way off on the horizon, owner was afraid it might rain, so he had a flashlight out there saying, there's one over there, there's one over there, and we were still hauling hay at 10 o'clock that night. But three teenage boys moved more than a thousand bales of hay. I made $15, $15 that day, a penny and a half a bale. You ever been hungry? Have you ever had less? It does things to you if you've ever had less. It will be something you will remember the rest of your life when you had less. And you can be grateful when you have more. I thank God that our two sons have houses that are cool in the summer 
and warm in the winter, and all six of our little grandchildren don't really know what it's like to be cold or too hot. That's good. That's good. Number three. So keep the commandments. Walking in the ways of the Lord. Fearing Him, our translation says. Dr. Everett Fox, a great Jewish scholar, translates this and stand in awe of Him. Stand in awe. Jeff Nicholson has written a new book called The Lost Art of Walking. He's an Englander, grew up in Sheffield in England, says that everybody walked. And finally, his work brought him to the United States, not just anywhere in the United States, Los Angeles, California, where nobody walks, he said. People get in their car to go a block. They get in their car to drive across the parking lot at the mall. It's unbelievable, he said. They've lost the art of walking. And in his book, he talks about some of the really interesting places he's walked. Gail and I have had some interesting walks together. In England, they do walk a lot. There are great parks where you can walk. There are fields and fields where you can walk, particularly if you go up into the Lake District. There's some beautiful places there. Gail and I walked one morning, cool, fresh, sun out, all the way to Peter Cottontail's house. That very house where all the stories about Peter Cottontail were written went into Mr. McGregor's garden and saw all the vegetables that Peter loved so much. We didn't see Peter, but I bet he was there in that garden somewhere. The last time we were in Paris, they were having a, a strike. All the public transportation had shut down. Subways, trains, buses, taxis, all on strike. And we were trying to get around Paris to see the things we really wanted most to see. We had hoped our last day to go out to Giverny to see the home of Claude Monet. And we were told, well, maybe there'd be a train working, maybe not. We decided to try, see if it would be running that day. So we had a city map and we we're walking. And every time we'd get to an intersection, I'd recheck the map. Didn't want to be on the wrong street, wrong time. And suddenly a young man in suit, coat and tie, very handsome young man walked over to us with our maps in our hand and asked, may I help you? And we told him we were trying to get to a particular train station. He said, I'm going that way. Would you walk with me? We said, sure. And so we walked along beside this young Parisian. And he said, aren't these beautiful wide streets we have here? We don't tell everybody a German designed these streets, he said. You see that church over there as we kept walking? He told us who the architect was, when that church was first built, how long it had been in existence. We got a little farther. Here's the museum. He said, if you have some extra time, you might want to see this museum. I particularly like it. And he told us which floor and which room he liked best of all. We walked with him 10 or 15 minutes. And then he said, there's the train station. And we crossed the street. And there it was to walk and to see. We didn't want to be going in the wrong direction. We want to be going in the right direction. And how much easier it was when we had someone who said, will you come with me? Will you walk with me? We will go with you. We will walk with you. Will you walk with your God? Will you stand in awe of Him? In awe of Him? Number four. When you've eaten your fill, be sure you give thanks. That's what it says. When you've eaten your fill, will you remember to give thanks. Marion West is a devotional writer. I've mentioned her to you before. Marion's had a hard time. She has an adult son who's battled alcoholism and drugs for years. 
In one of her devotionals, she talks about a day when she and her husband were supposed to catch a plane from Atlanta up to South Bend, Indiana for an engagement. And just before they left for the airport, they got a call about the latest crisis involving this adult son of theirs. And they debated, should they rush over and check on him one more time or should they go on and fulfill this engagement? They decided they really ought to go to South Bend, Indiana. But Marion said, I kept thinking all the way, where is God? Why is God not doing something about this son of mine? Why is God not doing something about him? And she said, I told him to my husband, where is God when we need him most? And he just smiled and got on the plane with me. When we got up above 30,000 feet and the pilot said we had reached our cruising altitude, my husband pointed out the window and said, look, we're above all the clouds now. Isn't it beautiful down there? Don't you feel closer to God now? She said, frankly, no, I don't. I just feel higher off the ground. He said, we find, she said, we finally landed in South Bend and started pulling our bags across this wide expanse there in South Bend. Thousands of people moving along. They have a tile floor, she said, and the wheels on our luggage were going sort of clickety, 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 clickety. And somehow it seemed to be saying to me, where is God? 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 And suddenly she said, my husband caught me by the hand and pulled me into a room that turned out to be the airport chapel. No one else was inside, she said. When the door closed behind us, it was silent. And we looked and saw candles burning. And just above those candles, a little bulletin board where people had written names. Other travelers who had somebody on their hearts, had written a name and had lit a candle, had written a name and had lit a candle. And suddenly, I knew where God was. And I knew where God's heart was. And I knew He was there for us, that His Holy Spirit was there for us.